Happy New Year and welcome to the Bellingham Veg Fest show. For our first episode of the new year, we wanted to discuss a topic that could give us hope. And I can't think of another topic that gives me more hope than the work that Laura Reese is doing with the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. She and her team essentially lobby Congress to make agriculture fair. As most of you know, a huge amount of our tax dollars go to subsidies, which mostly funds animal agriculture, and very few dollars go to plant-rich foods, which are better for us, the environment, and of course, the animals. We chatted with Laura last June, and we asked her to come back because AFA is working on exciting things, and we want you to know about it. Enjoy. Welcome, Laura. Thanks, Thanks for being for here. Me, Selena. Absolutely. It's good to be back. <laughs> it is. I know we just talked to you last June, but we wanted you to come back because you were working on some fun things. But before we get into that, let's do a little quick refresher for our listeners. What is AFA? AFA is a lobbying nonprofit. So we're filed as a 501c4, which means we can use all our money to hire lobbyists in DC and try to influence lawmakers and politicians. Our mission is simply to level the playing field in agriculture subsidies so that plant-based foods can have an even playing field to compete on. Right now, subsidies are highly skewed toward animal feed and dairy products and meat and very, very little of our tax dollars in ag policy are going to fruits, vegetables, and grains that wind up as healthy food on our, our plates. A lot of the grains that get subsidized wind up as completely stripped of nutrient value, and it's not really even food by the time it ends up on our plates. Wow. So we're trying to fix that because we... Ultimately, we want people who are following a plant-based diet to be able to actually affect the food system with their everyday choices at the restaurant and at the grocery store. But right now, the system is kind of stacked against us. Yeah, and it's stacked against any farmer who is would like to produce these more plant-rich, fiber-rich foods, doesn't seem like there's much incentive out there for those farmers to farm those crops versus animal products. Right. They take on a lot of risk to grow a diverse set of nutrient-rich plant foods. Uh, When we talk to farmers, a lot of the farmers we talk to are in the Midwest and their number one concern often is managing risk. Well, the USDA in its current form is incredibly good at helping farmers manage risk if they grow a handful of commodities that are favored by USDA programs like soy, corn, dairy, wheat, those things. Um, And those those are like animal feed and processed foods. Yeah. And one thing we didn't talk about in June your background is not politics and lobbying, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that when we, when we talk about this topic, it seems so out there and that no one could do it, but you, your background is, you were a, Sil- a Silicon Valley engineer, right? So you yeah. didn't have, so like, <laughs> this is all new for you, really. Yeah. I was in product planning at a semiconductor company and that was my whole career. 
And then my husband and I decided to try living off of savings and see if we could just make that work. And we're pretty frugal. And then during that time, um, that's when we kind of became aware of uh, the impact of agriculture in the larger, say, um, climate catastrophe we're encountering. And, um, and then we, we went with a plant-based diet for health and, you know, all the reasons, all the reasons, ethics, health, environment, because it's all, it's all upside. And then I was, I was just uh, like up in the early morning reading a Reddit AMA, which is an ask me anything. And there was this lobbyist talking about how he would, you know, take anybody's issue to DC and people were just raging against him. Like you're the problem with our, with our system. And I, I was like, this is brilliant. I mean, the system is what it is. He's not to blame. The system needs to change. And we can talk about ways that I think would be most effective for changing the system. But the system is what it is. And if you want to influence policy, you need to do two things. One is raise money for politicians. And two is hire people who can message help you message to those politicians and get time with them. But it's exactly. It's like, it's like, don't play, don't blame the player, blame <laughs> the game. Right. I mean, like, what it is. I mean, I think, yeah. like, I think that it's really easy, especially as, you know, like a vegan activist to like point at individuals and say like, you need to stop doing what you're doing and make changes. I mean, I did that for, a few, you know, a few years on the street doing that with that, you know, activism and trying to talk to people and it's exhausting and I didn't really get anywhere. <laughs> like, so it's kind of like you've taken a step back and looked at the game and said, okay, well, we can't really, we need to change the game is basically what you're saying. And I admire that so much. I've learned, a, I'm trying to do that as much as possible in my life. <laughs> so. Well, I, I think holding a podcast and getting the message out to more people is really an effective way to use your time. Oh, I, well, too, I too did man on the street activism. Alongside <laughs> that's how we met. That's how we met, right? That's how we met, yeah. Yeah. And I just got to a point where I thought, well, why am I talking to some rando on the street who may or may not care? Why don't I talk to people who actually hold a lot of power and try to deliver a similar message? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I, I'm all for individual changes and I think that it's great. And I don't want to, you know, we can make a difference. We can certainly can make a difference. Can. Yeah, we can. So what's the most shocking thing you've learned about American food policy? Like if you could just like, just, I know it's probably so many things, but like, is there just like one thing that you could say that was, is the most shocking? I would say it's an insight that my co-founder Connie often repeats, which is that the American food system is fail proof for producers. So an example is if you are a, if you have a thousand acres and you grow corn in Iowa you can't lose because the the subsidy system, the commodity protections, the revenue protections are set up so that no matter what happens, you're going to be made whole at the end of it and um, and make money. 
So even though you're growing food that we don't really need more of, which is actually inedible for humans because it's a, it's a type of corn that goes into corn syrup, goes into animal feed, goes into processed foods, you're going to make no money no matter what. So it do- almost doesn't matter how the American consumer behaves that corn grower in Iowa is going to make money, which is kind of the opposite of what you imagine our American system is all about. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it definitely seems like that is backwards. So what's new since we've chatted in June? Well, what's new with AFA is, um, well, so there's always just... So every week we talk to our advocate in DC and um, there's always just like the latest, not scandal, but like high drama stake stuff going on, which is all the stuff you hear about, like build back better and everything. Um, We got in, we got, I guess in June we had just gotten some of our language added to the agriculture appropriations report portion of the bill, which directs the USDA to create a pilot program to help farmers transition to growing, say, fiber-rich food crops. Mm -hmm. That's kind of stalled because the Senate hasn't passed it yet, and I don't know if it's going to end up getting passed, so we might have to do it all again next year. But since then, we've also created draft legislation written by an ex-House staffer, Republican, that it's like a page and a half long, and we are shopping that to two politicians. One is Senator Warnock in Georgia, and one is uh, Representative Panetta in California, and we've been asking for people in Georgia and California 20th district to sign letters to those officials to introduce our legislation. And we've collected a lot of signatures and our lobbyist is engaged with both offices and we're going into the new year, very hopeful. Well, we're planning for success. So we're really hopeful that Senator Warnock will introduce this legislation. And again, it's, it's called the farms amendment and it, it would, be a pilot program to help any farmer who wants to, to transition to growing fiber rich food crops like vegetables, fruits and grains for human consumption. And hopefully that'll get introduced. And we have our whole, our members and our volunteers, we're working with them to get ready to write to their senators. So once it's introduced, the name of the game is getting a bunch of co-sponsors on it, both Republican and Democrat. And if we can get enough co-sponsors on it, then it has a good chance of being added to the farm bill, which is coming up. Uh, the lobbying for the farm bill is coming up next year. Yeah. And talk a little bit about the farm bill, because it's that's not something that comes up every year. And from what I understand, the farm bill is is everything. <laughs> yeah, the farm bill is it comes up. Roughly every five years. And in fact, if they fail to pass it, a lot of draconian measures from like the 30s kick in and nobody wants them, like with price fixing and it would really turn the system upside down. So it's sort of a nuclear option to let it slip past five years. And it has 12 titles and it covers, like I said before, a lot of risk mitigation stuff. So there are programs to help commodity 
crop growers protect revenue even when prices fall or yields drop in their area or like whatever happens, they make money, like I said before. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, on top of that, there's crop insurance, which is, in my opinion, kind of a racket because it's the taxpayer money is paying for about 60% of farmers premiums and it's going to for profit insurance companies that offer the payments if a, if a policy uh, pays out and then the insurance company will say, well, we don't have enough money. So taxpayer, will you help us <laughs> with the back end paying out the damages when the a policy is claimed? So that's another thing. And then you have a whole slew of programs in between. One whole title is dedicated to conservation and what I find is a lot of these programs, while well-intentioned when they were first put into the farm bill, they all just get hijacked by the big players and kind of watered down to the point where everybody's just at the trough getting the the money, except for the small independent farmer who all these programs were putting in place for. Now, these are all kind of generalizations, but that's kind of my impression the more I, I get into learning about all the different policies. And I don't know every program in the farm bill, there are so many, but um, the main ones where we have a pretty good eye on and um, there are, there's a lot of opportunity for improving <laughs> these, these programs. Absolutely. C can you speak a little bit about the, the social injustices within farming and what FA, AFA is doing about that or focused on? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting educational experience in these past, I guess, three years. So to me, there are two parts. There's the historical discrimination at the USDA, which is pretty widely acknowledged, especially with this current administration. Tom Vilsack has talked about it quite a bit. And it's it's tragic. There's on uh, the Environmental Working Group website. There's a page where they have a timeline and it goes through, I think, from the 30s onward to now, different things that have happened that have just been absolutely discriminatory. And uh, ultimately, like under Nixon's ag secretary, for example, Earl Butts, that guy was super racist. Like he ended up leaving office for telling a very both. He managed to tell both a racist and misogynistic joke all in one joke. And he ended up resigning because of it in shame. Of course, a lot of people still re revere him because he was a really good at coining phrases. But under his administration, if a black farmer came to the USDA asking to take advantage of any of the number of the programs, they were just kind of like put at the bottom of the pile or turned away altogether. So he, that's like one example, but this was throughout time, you can imagine, from Reconstruction on. So while at the turn of the last century, let me see if I remember these numbers correctly, roughly half of the farms were Black-owned, and now like 2% of the farms are Black-owned. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it was the Black farming community has absolutely been kind of removed from the equation. And now it's, and now the USDA wants to put in place, they have all these, these programs like the 2501 or the 
farming outreach training and opportunities program where they will actually, they have actually created a designation called socially, um, socially disadvantaged farmer. And I think that was in like the 1995-ish farm bill. And it's Black, Indigenous, Pacific Islander, Asian American, Latino, or Latin American. There's a whole list of uh, groups who are under this socially disadvantaged label, which is like an official designation. And they get put at the front of the line of a lot of programs. So, for example, our legislation that we're proposing, the Farms Act, it would prioritize Black and Indigenous and socially disadvantaged farmers. The problem is there are so few left that it's kind of like a Band-Aid on a gaping wound when really we need programs to bring people back. And a lot of these programs are designed to be taken advantage of by like family farmers or family corporate farmers where the more I learn about the agriculture industry, um, the more I kind of have come around to realize that we're not going to be saved by the, you know, the fiercely independent family farmer with the overalls and gingham dress like you imagine. We have incorporated all of farming and it's so industrialized. The only way to, like the way I see going forward that has any chance of success is if communities develop their own farming uh, outside of huge corporations and outside of these big conglomerates. So, and that is where I think we can go beyond just doing this Band-Aid fix of prioritizing socially disadvantaged farmers in all of the existing programs, which are pretty much made for corporations. And if we develop some some programs which help community farmers, like say 24 farmers in a community, establish some sort of a governance where they can coordinate, share tools, work with each other, maybe not be a cooperative, but they could be an association, for example, and develop some political clout. Um, I, I see a lot of opportunity there for traditionally discriminated farming groups to come back in and have a voice and, and be able to make money. Uh, are you aware of any current co-ops like that that are in effect? I'm aware of a few nonprofits that are trying to develop, to grow more vegetables and fruits and healthy foods among what they designate as socially disadvantaged groups. So there's like a grow where you are in Atlanta, which is doing oh. really good work. There's the Detroit. Oh, the acronym is always so complicated. The Detroit community. I remember you talking about it on the. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have, to, the, I have to look at <laughs> Or the case for prioritizing uh, dietary. Yeah. Dietary. yeah there, I, I heard you. I wrote it down too, and I don't have it in front of me. I probably we can add it um, to the show notes. Yeah, it's uh, his name is Malik Yakini. He's really I remember his name rather than the name of his organization. And then there are other other groups I really like, but they're not really growing foods. Like Chili's on Wheels in New York is getting 
fresh fruits and vegetables to underserved communities. I was just going to say, so what's happening with the USDA under this new administration? Is it, I know there was so much hope from a lot of people. Is it much different? Are you, do you see any changes or anything that's hopeful? I mean, this administration is a huge improvement over the last one. Okay. At least we can have conversations. Yeah. In, oh, good. In good faith, I think. Good. Uh, I, I see. So I, I watch a lot of Tom Vilsack talking and I've watched him back when he was ag secretary before under Obama and, and now, and there are a couple points he talks about a lot now that he didn't really talk about back then. And one is making things right with socially disadvantaged farmers, which I can't stand the name of that, by the way. I know. <laughs> I like saying it. I, it should, to me, the better word is historically um, marginalized farmers or historically discriminated against farmers. But I don't know if that really rings as well. But um, at least he, he talks about wanting to fix a lot of the, the problems. But like I said, the current farm programs aren't really designed for bringing those farmers back into production. It's designed for commodity, like somebody who owns 2000 acres in Iowa growing corn, not to say there aren't pro like there's a beginning farmers program and there's, there's a lot of educational resources available. Um, the other thing he talks a lot about is the connection between farm policy and nutrition security. And I think that's really important that he makes that link because I think that's a, a talking point we can capitalize on because it's just so obvious. We are subsidizing the foods that are not the foods that make us healthy. Like we're, we're sending 2% of our our taxpayer dollars and farm policy to fruits and vegetables um, under 10% to plant-based foods that retain their nutrition by the time they wind up on your dinner table or on your dinner plate. That means 90% <laughs> is like what I would categorize as not being food, you know, like uh, processed, refined hamburger buns and um you know what i mean by totally right absolutely absolutely i mean basically your shelf life that has no fiber yeah i mean it just doesn't match what the nutritional guidelines are for us like it's just not even close totally out of whack (laughs) yeah so the fact that this administration is has out of like their their four things that they care about that one of them that they talk about a lot is uh, using food policy and farm policy to address nutrition insecurity is a big one because you just have to look at how the subsidies are paid out and then show the my plate from the USDA nutritional dietary guidelines. And it's like, okay, these aren't even close. And I heard um, on uh, you invited me to listen in on the um, the case for prioritize, prioritizing diet, dietary fiber and farm policy. And I heard Nielko talk about how there are crops that she needs that she can't even get from the U.S. that she has to get from overseas. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and then you mentioned how that is that really is 
it's um, a national security risk, really. I mean, yeah. Uh, so that that webinar, I would encourage anybody listening to this to go watch just the first half of that webinar. Uh, we brought on a amazing panel of experts, and amazing. each one, I said, you have three minutes to get your point across. And I gave a little bit more to a couple of people, but they all did. And it's powerful. For example, Dr. Will Bolshewitz, who wrote the book Fiber Fueled, he, he made an amazing case for why fiber is so important. And like you hear fiber and it's easy to go, oh, that sounds boring, but it, it's actually like the key to not getting heart disease and not getting diabetes and not getting some cancers, like the leading causes of death in our country are tied to insufficient dietary fiber consumption. And the stats are insane. Insane, insane. 95% of Americans are not getting enough fiber, but that, that doesn't even sound that bad because you're like, okay, well, maybe they're just under. No, if you take the average fiber consumption of Americans, they're getting half the fiber they need. And as Dr. Will pointed out, that's half of the fiber, the minimum amount of fiber they need. That's not even optimal amount of fiber. So there's no wonder why, what, 600,000 people a year are dying of these diet-related diseases. Yeah, so that's on our YouTube channel. I know, and we'll, and we'll definitely link that because it is incredible, and I learned so much. I mean, I felt like I was part of this special, like... <laughs> I mean, I doc, and you talk about fiber being boring. If you listen to Doctor Will, and he will, you you will not feel that way anymore about fiber. Yeah, yeah. So Doctor Will, and then we had Christy Anderson from the American Heart Association, which was really powerful. When I talked to somebody who was on the Hill, she said that was that was a big deal because it it really gave credibility to the lineup. Like when you have somebody from the American Heart Association, then we had Miyoko Shinner, who she's pleading with Congress to please help American farmers produce the input she needs to make her dairy-free cheeses and plant-based uh, dairy products. And then we had an actual dairy farmer we're working with, Paul from Wisconsin, and his star story is heartbreaking. He's like, I want to leave my farm to my kids. I don't want to leave them something that they have to rely on government handouts in order to to feed themselves. I want a going concern. And he sees diversifying into fiber rich food crops as being the key to that. So he and Miyoko are working together. We put I, in touch. <laughs> I enjoyed every single person that talked. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. I think hearing from the dairy farmer was huge though. I mean, listening to the impact and like what, you know, he's looking at what his business is and what it's in it. And it, you know, he wants to keep it in the family and it's just not sustainable. Yeah, I liked when he said, like, you can choose to keep doing what you're doing, or you can look at what's reality and adapt. Um, and so he's choosing to adapt. I don't think it's easy for him, but he's like, what else am I going to do? I just think it's it's wonderful what he's doing. And then we had Tracy McWhorter, who started, she's written two books. I've read, I've read half of one of them. I'm still working on it, but it's really, it's a fascinating story. Her story is fascinating. She's been vegan for 30 plus years now, and she just okay. recently started a group called 10 Million Vegan Women. And um, man, she is, 
she helped me improve my messaging around the equity issues in ag because I thought I was pretty good about messaging in a way that was effective. And she helped me dial it up a little bit. How so? What, what? On one hand, I think people don't want to talk about discrimination in America. Like, you know, the typical person who's like, the Civil War ended, you know, over 100 years ago. And, you know, I don't see color. Ian, can't we just move on? Right. And they just yeah. want to brush it under the rug. Um, it's like, no, we need to talk about it because it's still going on. Slavery didn't end with the Civil War. In fact, slavery is still legal and as a punishment for a crime. But she she pointed out that some of the language, like it's better to talk about equity versus inequity and uh, and avoid words like deficiency because groups who have been discriminated against, like they don't want to constantly be referred to as being on the losing end of everything all the time. Like you want to empower and you want to recognize the injustice, but you want to do it in a way that's like affirming and, and everybody's equal in this. It's not, Oh, we're like pulling you up or anything. Right. So say words like equity versus inequity is, is probably the best example I have. Um, Very good. I really appreciate it working with her on that. So cool. It was, like I said, we'll link, we'll link that to the webinar um, in the show notes and I encourage, and maybe we'll make, make a separate post about it if it's okay with you and, and invite people to listen to that. Yeah. Just very, very cool. Very, very cool. One thing I've never asked you, what, why did you personally, like what's the, what's the personal motivation behind this for you? I'm just pissed off. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm just angry that my tax dollars are being used in this way. Okay, I'm is. trying to vote for plant-based food system with my diet, with what I purchase. Here's my my pineapple skin bag I just got for Christmas. Beautiful. Isn't it nice? It yeah. is. <laughs> but... I can purchase these things all I want. And yes, it is going to help like that manufacturer. And it's not, it's not that it doesn't have effect, but my consumer choices are being undermined by the way my government is spending my money. And I I want that to stop. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's, it's incredibly disappointing and, and I love to see that you are turning your anger <laughs> into something beautiful. I think you give us so much hope. Give me hope. How can we get involved? How, what can our listeners do? Talk about there's, I'm sure that we can donate. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that. <laughs> so AFA is totally funded by supporters. Most of our supporters give us $10 a month and 100% of that goes to lobbying. So we pay our advocate in DC with that. And then lobbying expenses like putting on that webinar and that kind of thing. The things you can do is uh, on our website, we have a get involved page. And one of the things that I think is really, I would urge anybody who fancies themselves to be a halfway decent writer to keep an eye out for articles in your local paper about 
like diet related diseases or about farmers who are losing their farms, anything that's related to ag or health. And you can write a letter to the editor. And the key thing to do in this letter to the editor is you respond to an article. So for example, there are a bunch of articles out right now about how a high fiber diet can be protective against melanoma. So you could write a letter to the editor. Now, it's not overwhelming. Typically, they have a word cap of like 250 words. So you have to identify the the article you're responding to, get across one, two, maybe three points, and then close it out and you're done. So it's not an overwhelming thing. And the key thing to do is at the end, after you talk about it, like you could say, dietary fiber isn't just about preventing melanoma. Did you know half of Americans are only getting half the fiber they need? And if they got all the fiber they need, we'd have less cardiovascular disease, less diabetes, less colon cancer. Um, And then you can say something like American farm policy is critical to change in order to address this nutrition crisis we're in. Um, We recommend that the USDA offer farmers the ability to diversify into producing fiber-rich food crops. You you can mention AFA or you don't have to. The main thing is to mention your two senators and your representative in the House of Representatives. So, for example, I would say all those things I just said, and then I say, I call on Diane Fein, Senator Feinstein, Senator Padilla, and Representative Anna Eshoo from California 18th. And uh, I call on them to make sure that in the next farm bill, independent family farmers have all the tools they need to diversify into growing fiber-rich foods for America's health, you know, make it, make it nice language. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the thing you do and then send that to us because that is all of a sudden a calling card for our lobbyists to go into those three offices on your behalf, take in your letter to the editor and um, maybe get them to sign on to the legislation that their colleagues have introduced on our behalf or some other call to action we have, that's super helpful. So anybody who like wants to write a letter to the editor, I would advise doing that. And it's once you do one, you realize it's actually pretty easy. And a lot of these publications, they're hungry for stuff to publish. And if you're referring to an article they already published, they already know it's topical. Like it's something that's already been vetted for their readers. So they're very likely to publish it. So I did this, I got one in the Washington Post we got a strategic one placed in uh, a couple in, in California papers that we used. A supporter in Minnesota placed it, so did a letter to the editor so we could take that to Tina Smith, for example. Yeah, those are really powerful. Okay. There are other calls to action, like signing a, a letter to your, your rep to sign on to some legislation. There are a few other things that are a little easier to do. Yeah. That's the one that's super powerful. Okay. Yeah. I could see how that would be also very empowering too, you know, for the individual. Yeah. And you're also putting, like we were talking about earlier, convincing one person on the street to say, embrace a plant-based diet, which is great. 
Um, but you get something into a paper that more eyes see and they make the connections. And as you know, when you're trying to help someone see a, a path for change, a lot of times it takes them seeing that path multiple times and you have to plant lots of seeds. And this is another way of spreading those seeds um, with this message. Absolutely. And so on the AFA website, do you have these call to actions? Is there a, a section for them? Yeah, it's agriculturefairnessalliance.org okay. or you can go to afa.farm, F-A-R-M slash act. And let me just make sure I have the exact, I've changed the menu recently. So if you go to agriculturefairnessalliance.org, yeah, it's just a main menu item, get involved. And then it says act now. Awesome. Well, we'll probably, we'll probably, we'll link the website, but maybe we'll also link that exact page too. So people can go right there. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. And then also the donations, they can sign up. Yep. It's right there as well. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you, Laura. I I said it before, but I think like I really wanted to start this new year with giving our listeners hope. (laughs) And I think that talking to you is one way to do that for sure. Thank you for all you're doing for the humans and for the animals. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I would just encourage everyone to write to your reps once every quarter, maybe with an issue you care about. You can get ideas on our website. Another one to do is push them to do anything they can to get money out of elections. This is, if I was to step back and say the one thing that needs to change in our system, we need public funding of elections. We need PACs to be illegal. We need strong legislation around elections, not just voting rights, although that's part of it, but getting money out of the election cycle. Like what I'm doing is nothing compared to that task. But if we don't tell our reps that we need to get money out of politics, they're they're not going to know. I mean, it's hardly even in the conversation. The main mainstream media, not that I rail against the mainstream media, like they're their own thing. Yeah. But they're not bringing this stuff up. Yeah. Because money's involved. Everybody loves it when money's involved. But we're, we're just going to keep getting these corporatist, narrow-minded politicians who privately might agree with us on a lot of stuff, but their hands are tied because they need to raise money to get reelected. Well, if you take that out of equation, we get our power back. Exactly. I was thinking about, I never really thought about it much, but this last election, I saw how much time politicians spent asking for money and trying to raise money. It's just, I, I hate to say this, but I kind of feel sorry for them because it's like they, if they're consumed with it. It's like the I I, they, I imagine that they're spending ninety five percent of their time asking raising money. <laughs> they put more time and energy into raising money to get reelected than they do into actually writing legislation. I don't know if you noticed, but we wrote the legislation we're pushing. They're not gonna. They're they may alter a couple words, but they're just like it needs to be baked. Yeah, before totally. They don't do anything with it. What? I know. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> That's the way it works. 
I know it's crazy. I, I, yeah, that, thank you for bringing that up because that, that is really important. Yeah. I didn't want to not. Yeah. No, no, it's good. It's good. Anything else that you want to add before we. Uh, Just go to our website and look at our act now page and see if there's just anything that inspires you just go for it. Awesome. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm like taking, like taking notes this entire time we've been talking. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. For Thanks, Selena. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the Bellingham Veg Fest show. If there are topics that you'd love to hear more about, please reach out. You can find us at bellinghamvegfest.org and be sure to follow Bellingham Veg Fest on Instagram and Facebook.